Well, good morning, Baylife. How are we? Doing well? It is great to see you. I hope that you had a good Thanksgiving. You were able to celebrate God's goodness in your life with your friends, with your family. I pray that you have somewhat recovered from the carb comas that inevitably follow Thanksgiving. I'm not quite there. Uh, My pants still fit a little bit tighter than they should, but I am recovering, thankfully. Uh, I realize that there's probably many of you whom I have not met, so let me introduce myself. My name is Travis Lowe. I am the college and career pastor here at Baylife Church. And I recognize that a lot of people don't know this about our church, but we actually do have ministries that extend beyond our high school ministry. And so once you step out of that age in your life, the college and career ministry is a great place for you to connect as you move into the workforce or your undergraduate degree or maybe even grad school and starting a family and what accompanies that. So we meet on Sunday nights and we do a lot of the same things we do on Sunday mornings. There's worship, there's prayer, there's preaching, there's communion. Uh, But then we also meet in small groups across the Brandon area throughout the week. And so if you find yourself in the congregation here at Bay Life, in that 18 to 25 year old range and say, hey, I really love this church. I'd love to meet some people here that are within my age demographic. I would love to talk with you over in the corner after our time together here is done. So now that that shameless plug is over, uh, would you do me a favor? Turn in your Bibles to the book of Titus. We'll be in chapter three, verses three through 10. We as a church have been walking through Titus, Paul's letter to somebody by the name of Titus, someone he calls his true son in the faith. Titus is likely a pastor. I believe it's Crete is the area. He's a church planter, and he's kind of setting up churches in the general vicinity. And so Paul is giving him instructions on how things ought to be, what Titus ought to insist on, what things are important. And so one of the things specifically last week that we talked about is Paul's recommendation or rather command to Titus that Christians be good citizens. And so Mark kind of unpacked this idea. The reality is that Christians are citizens of two kingdoms. There is the one that's on your passport, but there is the one that is the stamp upon your soul. And so what it looks like to be a citizen of your passport kingdom as well as the heavenly kingdom is actually rather complicated. And so that is always timely to come back to that truth and examine it afresh. Uh, This week, we are actually concluding our time together in Titus, looking at some of Paul's uh, final recommendations and commands to Titus on what he is to teach and what he is to be committed to. And so we'll be in verses 3 through 10. The last uh, 10 through 15 is really just Paul's final greetings and saying some things to the effect of, hey, say what's up to these people with you. And These people are with me, and they want to say hey to you. And so we'll focus really on the teaching aspect at the end of this letter. But but something that you may not be aware of uh, is that when Paul wrote this letter to Titus, there's some things he didn't actually include that your Bible includes, specifically the chapters and the verses. You may not be aware. You might be aware. Ancient letters are the same as modern letters. You don't begin your email by saying, chapter 1, verse 1, dear John, hey, what's going on? Chapter 2, things are good with me. That's just not how it functioned in the ancient world. The the chapters and the verses were added a little bit later to Scripture so that we could navigate it more easily. 
Because the reality is that when you're having a conversation with somebody about Romans, and you say, without chapters or verses, hey, what do you think of what Paul says in Romans? And they respond, well, where? You have to say something like, well, line 467, six words in. And that gets a little complicated. So the chapters and the verses are there to help us navigate, but one of the problems is that we impose kind of a modern understanding of what chapters do on something that wasn't actually written with chapters. Paul didn't break his letter to Titus up into chapters. And so we think uh, something to the effect of, well, at the end of a chapter, that's the end of a thought. That's the end of the idea. That's the end of the story. The beginning of the chapter is a new thought. It's a new idea. It's a new story. This is simply not the case. Paul did not expect Titus to read three verses at a time of what he sent him. He expected Titus to read the whole thing. And he expected Titus to read the whole thing in one sitting. And so I say all this firstly, because now that we're finishing Titus, uh, can I just commend to you, maybe during your time with the Lord this week, that you actually sit down and read this letter beginning to end as Paul intended for it to be read. I actually timed it in the back during worship. It takes about five minutes. Uh, So none of us can say that we are without time to do these things. But the second reason I say this is because I think we honor Scripture and we honor God when we read Scripture in large chunks aloud and let the full sweep of it wash over us. And so rather than kind of just jumping into the text and starting in verse 3 and explaining that and moving to verse 4 and explaining that, uh, can we instead do this? Can I read you Titus 3 through 10 beginning to end so that you can hear it as Paul meant for it to be heard? Now, there's something that we do in college and career ministry, and so this might feel a little uncomfortable for you, but, but we want to honor God's word when it's read aloud, because we believe that when Scripture speaks and what Scripture says and what Scripture teaches, God says. And so I'm going to ask you to do this. Would you stand with me for the reading of God's word? And we'll read this text aloud. The letter of Paul to Titus, chapter 3, verse 3. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, Led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and the loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. So that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy. I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and they're profitable for people. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law. For they are unprofitable and worthless. As for the person who stirs up division... After warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. You can take a seat. Thank you for standing. So, Paul concludes his letter to Titus really with two specific things in mind. You can probably draw a horizontal line, yeah, horizontal line, down the middle of the text, because there's really two specific divisions. Paul wants to talk to Titus about things that are profitable, 
things that he should be committed to in his ministry, things that his churches and that the church that he works with should be about, things that, that should be frequent topics of conversation. So the first category Paul wants to talk about are things that are profitable. Now the second category that Paul wants to actually warn Titus of is things that he would call unprofitable. Things that are not helpful, things that Titus should flee from, things that Titus should warn people about and not associate with people who commit themselves to such things. So it's best to begin at the beginning. Paul talks about what is profitable, what is good, what should the church, what should the people of God be committed to. The, The adjectives that Paul uses to describe this are actually really tremendous. He calls... These things, excellent. He calls them trustworthy. He uses the word, as we've said, profitable. He goes on to say that these things should be insisted on. And that these are the kind of things that when taught and when insisted on will spur Christians on towards good works. Which is a a main theme in this letter. Is that Christians are not simply people who sit around cups of coffee at Starbucks and pontificate and philosophize. But we are people who do. So what are the profitable things that Paul tells Titus to insist on? Well, that begins in verse 3. And there's really four threads in this tapestry that he weaves of things that we should insist on. The first thread is this, verse 3. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Now, when he says we ourselves, he's not just talking about him and Titus. He's talking about himself. He's talking about Titus. He's talking about the people in both of their churches. He's talking about you, and he's talking about I or me. The first thing that Paul says that Titus should insist on is that people remember who they were. Remember that you were once foolish, that you were once arrogant, that you were once malicious, that you were devoted to passions, that you were hateful, and that you were hated. Now, I've got quite a few friends who came to Christ a little bit later in life, which means they had plenty of time to build their testimony, so to speak. And the last thing that many of them want to do is reflect on and meditate on and think extensively about the things that they did before they knew Jesus. In fact, many, many of us in this room have walked for a long time uh, a very far way away from the Lord. And we don't really want to think about that time in our life. And so uh, there might be something in us here that when Paul says insist on people remembering where they came from, that just kind of sits wrong with us. Why do we want to remind people of their failings? Why, why do we want people to dwell on this? It almost sounds a little bit sadistic as though we're lording people's past over them. But I don't think that Paul has this sort of thing in mind. And I think there's a specific reason why he wants people to remember where they came from. He wants it to be insisted upon. He says it will spur us on to good works. Uh, Because when we forget who we were before Christ, when we forget where it is that we came from, we can't empathize with people who are still there. I'm not really on social media anymore mostly because it's about the most depressing place in the whole world. Uh, So I'm about a month sober from Facebook, and I recommend it to you. It's awesome. 
And you like people a lot more and hate people a lot less when you do this. Uh, but, but here's the thing that I always found discouraging on Facebook, is the sheer amount of contempt with which Christians view the lost. Now, we don't actually say that, right? We don't post status updates like, OMG, I hate lost people so much, right? Because that doesn't sound good. That when somebody who is lost and far from God acts in accordance with where they are, whether it's laws passed or public statements made or celebrities uh, writing articles or doing public service announcements, there is just this hatred and there is this contempt for them that so often finds its way into our hearts as Christians and the things that we say as though we forget that there was a point at which we too were far off. Here's the reality. Nobody is grandfathered into the faith. Nobody is born a Christian. Every single person in this room, if you profess the name of Jesus now, there was a point where Scripture identified you as an enemy of God. And if you forget that, you will view the loss with contempt rather than compassion because you'll think that their experiences are disconnected. Their experiences are disconnected from your own. There's a, a prominent speaker and author these days, a woman named Rosaria Butterfield. She is the wife of an Orthodox Presbyterian minister. But she spent the first half of her life as a tenured college professor at Rutgers and a, an atheist. She was very much far from the Lord, uh, not really much in her life that would have lined up with the, the Christian gospel in any way, shape, or form. And it was during this time in the 90s where uh, a popular Christian men's conference came through the town in which she lived. And it was at this point that she was still very much hostile to the Christian faith. And so she wrote an op-ed piece in her local newspaper just about how she felt like the ideas of this conference and Christianity by extension were backwards and regressive and harmful and dangerous. So I didn't know this, but when you write op-ed pieces, apparently you can get what, what we might call fan mail, which is normally just people thinking you're dumb and disagreeing with you. And so in her most recent book, she recounts that she had a pile on her desk of fan mail from Christians that were dripping with venom and hatred and maliciousness and fury about the things that she said. And all this did was confirm in her mind that Christians were every bit as backwards as she thought we were. But there was one letter that she got from a minister in her town, a guy by the name of Ken. I don't think she named his last name. And the letter didn't agree with a single thing that she said, but there was a tone about it that was gracious and said, you know, Rosaria, you seem very passionate about these things and you're, you're obviously a very intelligent person. I think you might have misunderstood why we think the way we do as Christians and what we really believe. Would you be willing to come over and, and have dinner with me and my wife and my two or three kids. And so she actually recounts that, that she viewed this as an opportunity to view Christians in the wild, right? And so she's like, okay, I'll, I'll see them in their nat natural habitat and, and kind of do some field work on them. And so she goes to dinner with this pastor who's invited her and, um, and they sit down for dinner and he says, hey, do you mind if we just pray before this meal? And she said, yeah, that, you know, that's fine. Uh, and so she kind of lowers her head just out of respect for the home that she's in. And Ken begins his prayer by repenting 
of the sins that he's committed that week. He begins by saying, Father, forgive me. I haven't loved my wife as I ought to. Lord, would you forgive me? I haven't been a good father to my children. Father, I haven't been the best pastor that I could have been this week to the people that you've entrusted me with. Would you have mercy on me? Lord, I thank you that you've provided this food for us to eat, even though I continue to be so sinful and to fall so short. And Rosaria actually points to this experience as being the first rung in the ladder that would lead her towards conversion and becoming a Christian. Why? Because she encountered Christians who had not forgotten where they came from. It had been insisted upon in this man's life that he always remember that he was once foolish, that he was once opposed to the gospel. And so when he encountered somebody who was like that, he didn't treat her with contempt. He treated her with compassion, knowing that but by the grace of God went he. So Paul says, insist on this, not so that people are haunted by their failures, but so, so that they remain merciful towards people who are still lost. That they don't grow contemptuous and hateful and spiteful towards people who are still dead in their sins. But they recognize, I was once there, I can have compassion on people who are still there. This is the first thread that Paul draws out. The next thread, after insisting that we remember who we were, the next thread is found in verse 4. He says, but when the goodness and the loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. So the first thing he says to Titus is that this is trustworthy and you should insist on it, that you remind people of where they came from. The second thing that he says to Titus is that you should insist on reminding people how they got here. And how they got here was not because they were really good at anything in particular but how they got here was the sheer grace of God. He says, remind people, insist that they remember that they were not saved because they were good public speakers, nor were they saved because they were proficient businessmen, nor were they saved because they were a pretty good guy who just needed to kind of get over the hill and finally become a Christian, nor were they saved because they won Husband of the Year award in some magazine. No, they were saved not because of their goodness, but in spite of their wickedness. Out of the goodness of God. There's a great danger in the church that those of us who are maybe further along in the Christian life or those of us who, who have different giftings, maybe more public giftings, that we would develop this sense of arrogance. You know, that God saved me because I'm a great speaker. God saved me because I'm an awesome singer and he needs a really good worship leader. God saved me because I'm a great guy anyways, and what makes a great guy greater than the good old gospel? No. The Lord can raise up worship leaders out of stones and rocks. He can raise up speakers out of Egyptian princes with speech impediments. God saved you not because you were good, not because you were worthy, but because he is good. This is something Paul says we should insist on because it levels the playing field. Um, there's an Anglican minister who passed away probably four or five years ago, a man named John Stott. 
who has had a tremendous influence on me. He was a rector in the Church of England, just a brilliant theologian and Bible teacher. And John Stott was actually speaking at a conference that a friend of my uncle's went to. It was a pastor's conference. And so uh, this guy is just super excited about the fact that I get to meet John Stott, or I, I get to see John Stott speak. And through some kind of amalgamation of events, he actually gets the rooming list for the conference. And not only is he going to hear John Stott speak, but by some freak accident, John Stott is his roommate in the hotel room. Now, I should say this. I've never been good at sports. I can barely put one foot in front of the other and walk in a straight line. I am not coordinated in any way, shape, or form. So sports people are not my heroes, and I couldn't pick out the five most famous basketball players from a police line, even if you gave me hints who wants to be a millionaire style. I just couldn't do it. But I could pick out John Stott. I could pick out J.I. Packer. I could pick out Charles Spurgeon. I could pick out people like that. And so this guy is like me, and that for him, he's like, oh my gosh, I get to share a hotel room with the coolest guy in the whole world that most of the world's probably never even heard of. And so he's, he's super excited about this opportunity, and by, let's call it the providence of God, his flight is delayed to about three in the morning he gets in. And the only thing he sees of John Stott is a bump on the bed covered in blankets. And he goes to bed so discouraged about the fact that he didn't get to meet this titan of the faith. Uh, but he woke up the next morning and he's still kind of bummed about the fact that I was roommates with John Stott and never talked to him. And he's putting on his clothes and he uh, reaches down to put on his shoes. And he notices that his shoes have been shined and polished. And John Stott, having never met the man, never meeting the man, they never met each other, he took the time to shine the shoes of his anonymous roommate for the night. But would you expect anything less if what Paul says is true? That the greatest theologian, the best public speaker, the most gifted worship leader, the member of the parking team, the person who sits in the chairs or the pews every Sunday, the greeter that meets you at the door, the usher that brings the offering plates forward, all of them are beggars at the door of God's grace. And when we insist on the fact that you weren't saved because you were awesome, you were saved in spite of your wickedness, it levels the playing field. And we can start treating each other in humility with the heart of servants and not out of a hierarchy born of our own arrogance. Paul says, insist on this so that no one thinks that they are anything more than a beggar at the door of God's grace. So that is the, the second thread. He goes on in verse 5. He says that he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration, the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. So first thread, insist that they remember who they were. Second thread, insist that they remember how and why they got here. Third thread, insist that they are washed clean of their past. One of the most difficult thing, things for Christians is to realize that they are not actually defined by the sins that once defined them. And 
that you are no longer marked as adulterer, that you are no longer marked as a person with anger problems or alcoholic or a porn addict or whatever else has been central to your identity. But instead, though you were foolish and far off, in God's mercy, he has washed you clean of that identity by the Holy Spirit. Paul says, insist on this. So that though people remember who they were, they know that that is not who they are anymore. But who they were. It's almost like looking at pictures of yourself after you've lost a great deal of weight. You're like, yeah, I used to be really fat. Not anymore. But I can remember that and I can think about what it was like to be there. But there's a second point to what Paul's saying that he actually says... Uh, it's one of the reasons that it should be insisted on. So it's not just that we're washed by the Spirit, but that the Spirit has been poured out on us richly, he says, in Christ Jesus. There's a very common phrase in Christianity these days. It fits well on coffee mugs and precious moments cards and uh, maybe bumper stickers and wall plaques. And I don't mean to offend you if you have any of these things saying this particular statement, but I just want you to know it's wrong Uh, in love. There is this thing that we think that God is not going to give you any more than you can handle. Now, that's actually kind of a paraphrase of God will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you can bear, which is true and scriptural. But this idea that God will never allow life to throw at you anything more than you by your own strength can handle is not true. Point in case, the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians tells the church in Corinth that while he was in Asia, he and the people who he labored in ministry with grew so overwhelmed and so burdened beyond their own strength that they lost the will to live. He says, we were so burdened beyond our own strength that we despaired of life itself. If it happened to Paul, it can and it will happen to you. But Paul goes on and he says, this was meant to cause us to rely not on our own strength, but on the Spirit of God that raises people from the dead. Listen, the Christian life is not meant to be you white-knuckling your way through temptation and through sin and through trial. But instead, Paul says, insist on this. The same spirit that washed you has been poured out on you. So it's not just you cruising through, but God doesn't expect you. He doesn't expect you to walk through this by your own strength, but instead to rely on the spirit that he has poured out on you. The Christian life is not lived alone. It's a life meant walking by and in the spirit. He says, insist on this so that people know They're not alone when things grow more difficult than what they can bear in their own strength, but that they can rest on him who is stronger than all. The last thread actually kind of flows logically from this. After talking about insisting on who we were, reminding us of how we got here, talking about our washing and receiving of the Holy Spirit, he says this, So that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. And moving from death to life out of God's good and gracious love for us. And receiving the Holy Spirit, he says, insist and remind people 
that they are justified. Justification is a pretty big theological term, but, but the heart of it, the essence of it is this, that you in Christ stand before God righteous. So even as you remind people of who they were, you need to remind people of who they are, which is righteous and able to stand before God blameless. Now that's profound in and of itself because you can just take stock of your day so far and know that you're not blameless. But this is what Christ has done for us in justifying us. Now, I called each of these things threads, and I did that intentionally so, because really what we've done is we've examined each of these different threads that Paul tells Titus are excellent, that they're trustworthy, that they should be insisted upon, that they'll spur us towards good works. But if you step back from the threads, you'll notice that there is a tapestry that has been painted here. If you were to look at any evangelist's most basic gospel message and try and overlay it with what Paul said, you would see that it lines up almost perfectly. You're a sinner. You have to be saved by grace. You're washed clean by the Spirit, and you're justified before God. The thing that Paul is telling Titus to insist on is very simply the gospel. It is the foundations of the Christian hope. He's saying, insist on the gospel. Hold it in front of people. Never let it move to the peripheral of your vision, but always let it be at the forefront. And in insisting on this, it will spur people on towards good works. It's not just kind of a nice idea. He says it's trustworthy. It's a bedrock of truth. It's an anchor of hope. He says this is what is profitable. But there's a whole section where he talks about what is unprofitable, and that picks up in verse 9. So the things that he says are unprofitable are this. He says, avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law. For they are unprofitable, they are worthless. As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. What is it that Paul's talking about here? I think if we just kind of casually glance over this, people might come out with this idea that, yeah, doctrine divides and Jesus unites. But what Paul is not saying is that certain theological questions are not worth dividing over. All of Paul's letters are emphasizing the importance of what we believe. Listen, the idea that denominations are kind of just some casual and unnecessary thing is naive. There are reasons there are denominations because there are things worth splitting over. When there's a denomination that continues to keep atheists as ordained priests, that's worth dividing over. When there are denominations that deny the divinity of Christ, that's worth dividing over. When there are people who reject the Trinity, that's worth dividing over. When the inspiration and authority of Scripture is not uniformly agreed on, that's worth dividing over. That's not what Paul is saying. He's not saying that there aren't central things that we need to keep central and we need to disagree strongly on. Rather, what he's actually referring to is a series of ideas that had started to take shape in his day called Gnosticism. It comes from the Greek word gnosis, which means knowledge. And so essentially the Gnostics and people that kind of swung towards this wing of Christianity, uh, 
had ideas that are very complicated, but in essence, it was things like, yeah, the gospel that Paul gave you is good. That's nice. It's helpful. Um, but there's more. Did you know that? There's actually some secret knowledge that, that this teacher over here has figured out, or there's some secret thing that Jesus whispered at some odd, obscure time in his ministry that the apostles didn't catch, but my friend over here got it. And so, so it's gospel plus. And what had happened, actually Paul refers to it in 1 Timothy as well. He expands the list to go beyond just genealogies, to go beyond simply um, things that sound strange, things like genealogies and speculation. He actually includes myths, uh, endless myths and debates. And so what had happened is people had developed these complex ideas like, well, there's some secret things encoded in the Old Testament that you can only kind of figure out if you have the secret knowledge, or there's some secret truths about creation. It wasn't just God creating. There was other spirits and things out there doing, doing some things in creation. And, and these angels, you know, they should actually probably be worshipped because we've received this secret knowledge. And so it was gospel plus. It was this Frankenstein's monster of theology. Now you hear that and you say, that sounds strange. Why would any believe, anybody believe something like that? But here's the crazy thing is i bought lunch at Publix yesterday and walking through the checkout aisle, there's this weird genre of like pseudo-Christian magazines and books that hang out at grocery stores. And they advertise things like shocking Bible mysteries revealed. They advertise things like the Bible code cracked. They advertise things like biblical secrets unleashed. If Paul were writing this letter today, he would say, avoid foolish Bible codes and blood moons and endless speculation about things that are less certain and less concrete than what God has spoken decisively through his son. The reality is even some of that, many of us hear and go, okay, so that doesn't actually necessarily apply to me because I didn't sell all my things uh, the last time somebody predicted the end of the world. And I'm not reading the magazines that say that if you read the Bible underwater with your eyes closed backwards in Hebrews, then you can come up with something special. You know, we, a lot of us would say we don't fall into that category. But Paul's getting at something that all of us fall into because all of us have this fundamental temptation to think that the gospel is not enough. We have this fundamental temptation that, that we all fall into that says to us, the gospel is something I mastered in Sunday school. It was the first rung in the ladder. Now it's time to jump off into deeper waters. We have this fundamental inclination to want to hear something new because we think that something old has been exhausted of its meaning. It's built into the way that we buy our phones. After four years, the phone is no good anymore. And so for us, as people who are constantly obsessed with the new, it bleeds over into our Christian lives. And we think, is the gospel really all there is? There must be something more. There must be something newer and shinier and deeper and fuller. It actually has even affected the way that we talk about the word gospel, right? Because the gospel is not for me now that I'm a Christian. The gospel is for my coworker who's going through that nasty divorce and hasn't accepted Jesus yet. The gospel is for my atheist philosophy professor. The gospel is for my crazy Uncle Jim who just really needs Jesus. But Paul is telling Titus what to do in the church. He's saying the gospel is not just for those out there. It's to be insisted upon for people in here. 
And you should avoid the temptation to think that there is anything beyond it. That it needs more to be added to it, to be complete. That it needs speculation and genealogies and myths to be finalized. Listen, for Paul, the gospel, there are no deeper waters than the gospel. There is nothing beyond it because there could be nothing beyond it because it's the fullness of God to save sinners. It is the fullest and most profound revealing of who God is. And dangerous and deadly things happen when, like an adulterous bride, we think that there's comfort in the arms of another aside from our husband. St. Augustine actually kind of summarizes the gospel in this way. He says, Great is the mystery of our faith, that he, ruler of the stars, might nurse at his mother's breast, that the bread might hunger, the fountain thirst, the light sleep, the way be tired in his journey, that truth itself might be accused of false witness, the teacher be beaten with whips, the foundation suspended on wood, That strength itself might grow weak. That the healer might be wounded. That life itself might die. Great is the mystery of our faith. It doesn't need anything added to it. There is nothing deeper than it. We can describe the gospel, as one commentator put it, that it is shallow enough for a child to wade in and deep enough to drown an elephant. Paul says, insist on that. That's profitable. And avoid speculation. God has spoken decisively in his son. And we need to rest in that. So may you and I as Christians always marvel at the gospel of God's grace. And may we as a church always insist on its importance. Father, we love you. Lord, we are grateful that you give us this time together this morning to discuss things that are profitable. Lord, I pray that these discussions carry out uh, and carry on in our life groups. Lord, I pray that these discussions carry on in our conversations over coffee in the lobby. And Lord, I pray that these discussions, as Paul has said, spur us on to good works. That we're not a people filled with empty talk and speculation but there were a people moved to action because you have moved in history. That's what we are moving into the season that we use to celebrate. God, we are moving into a season where we remember that you have acted decisively. You have spoken uh, in the past through the prophets and you speak now decisively through your son. And as we remember his first coming, we long for his return our faith is made sight when there's no need for speculation and that we're not even tempted by it because the truth itself stands in front of us in the person of Jesus God I pray that we live in light of that day that we insist on the gospel that it spurs us on to good works Lord we ask all these things in Christ's name